Let me explain what I, what I want to do this evening. Uh, I, I want to first look at Deuteronomy 20, which is the passage. And, and maybe I should just start initially by saying I, I suspect this is, this is one of the most uh, popular reasons given for not believing in God or not accepting the Christian God. And uh, it is often used, and I've never been in a group uh, that where you know, people haven't experienced this and, and come into it in terms of... Uh, of a challenge to their faith, or maybe found it in your own, in your own life uh, an, an issue. Uh, I, I'm going to take a kind of different approach, so uh, I hope that will work. <laughs> um, I'm not a philosopher. I don't know always what I'm doing in these situations. I do, uh, my background is more in Old Testament, the languages, and archaeology and backgrounds in that area. So, um, what you'll see, and, and, and you'll see that, because we will do a more of an exegetical and historical understanding than, uh, than maybe uh, uh, what we might otherwise do. I, I'll start by looking at the classic uh, text about the command to exterminate the Canaanites, which is Deuteronomy chapter 20. We'll spend a few minutes talking about that as the ideal, and look a little bit at its theology, and also look at what... The emphasis there is, which is the concept of the city. Uh, what is a city in the Bible and how is it understood? Uh, and then I'm going to go into a specific uh, illustration of this, which is Joshua 1 to 11. There, uh, I believe that there are many different issues in different texts, but they have to be approached on a case-by-case -case basis. So. In this case, I'm going to look at Joshua 1 to 11, because usually with Dawkins and others, this is the text that is often cited. Joshua commanded the Israelites to go in and kill every man, woman, and child, how terrible God is. So uh, I'm going to look, though, at what actually happened. And, and here, here is the question, what happened? Not necessarily the, the ideal, even, whether Joshua and Israel obeyed God or did not obey God. In this case, what actually happened? And, and, and this is where I, I reject the, uh, the position of genocide. Can everyone see? Uh, this is the... <laughs> Good. Okay, and then uh, we'll look at Jericho as a fort. I'll talk about that. Rahab as the non-combatant, the only non-combatant. The king as a commissioner. The army size. Uh, how large was this army? And Jericho itself. Um, and then we'll look briefly at I and at the southern and northern coalitions that Israel uh, fights and defeats in Joshua chapter 10 and 11. And uh, to anticipate my conclusions, I believe non-combatant deaths are unlikely and unattested. Uh, that's, and uh, well, I'll, I'll talk more about that as we get to it. Um, let's begin by looking at Deuteronomy 20 which is, this is the NIV, and is the classic text uh, usually described. It says, however, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, it had just finished talking about uh, Deuteronomy 20, introduces this warfare by talking about those cities that, where Israel does not receive them as an inheritance, those cities outside of the land of Israel. So uh, that's a different situation. It's not so uh, clear cut or as, uh, as stern as it is here. In the cities of the nations the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, those are the ones in the land of Israel. Do not leave anything, do not leave alive anything that breathes, excuse me, completely destroy them, Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. 
Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Um, you see here uh, a, a couple of things because we'll come back to this. Uh, first of all, the point here is that God is holy and he wants his people to be holy. Uh, that, in fact, humanity, however, is sinful. And right from the beginning, from Genesis 3, uh, the, the penalty for sin when it enters into the world is death. Uh, and so that's part of the theology. We can talk about that and what that uh, implies, but that is the penalty for sin. Uh, that's usually, though, not the point that people bring up as an objection, because most people are willing to accept that we eventually die, and uh, they, they may or may not blame God for that, but it doesn't have the kind of visceral, emotional effect as the idea of Israel going in and just exterminating everybody. And that's the sort of picture you get in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. It sounds like really a complete destruction. Now, it's important, well, let's, let's look at a few points here. The holiness of God is, the, is, is at kind of the beginning of this, the sinfulness of humanity, the idea that all deserve death. That all is part of a theology that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on unless you have questions afterwards. And that is the point of the text. My my uh, uh, concern is not so much the question of uh, is the holiness of God uh, shown here or what is it that God expresses here. This is a kind of ideal, as much of the law is. Israel doesn't fulfill or live up to that, or they do sometimes, but that's not the question because the usual visceral emotional issue is, is this actually what happened? Uh, is this what Joshua and Israel did? Did they simply go in and just kill lots of non-combatants, uh, innocents? What actually did happen on the ground? And on this, we have to do a case-by-case -case basis. So I I'm, I'm chose Joshua as probably the most frequently cited uh, text in, in this matter and to look at it. Now, if you remember in Deuteronomy 20, it, it actually doesn't say Everywhere, uh, it says, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you, uh, do not leave anything alive. And the question is, what is the term cities? What does city mean? And I want to spend a minute looking at this, a kind of word study simply, uh, because we think of a city as a major metropolitan center. That's not the ancient, the ancient term, the Hebrew term for city, the original of the language is ear, like your, your ear only. It's, uh, that's how you pronounce it, but that's the word for city, and it really means a population center. This word, for example, is used in Joshua 6 with regards to Jericho some 13 times it's called an ear. Uh, but it's also used of a small town, the town, little town of Adam, where the uh, waters block up uh, as a result of uh, uh, stones coming in and therefore block the Jordan River so Israel crosses over on dry land. And, Joshua 3.16. It's used of a village like Bethlehem uh, in 1 Samuel 20. And it's used of tent encampments, not a permanent place, but simply a place where uh, you have tents for nomadic peoples to stay for a while, maybe before moving on in Judges 10. And uh, 
very importantly for, for our understanding, or my understanding of ear as it's used, it's used of the citadel at the capital of, uh, of the Ammonites. In 2 Samuel 12, the Ammonites are an enemy of Israel. Their capital is, in, uh, is at a place called Rabbah, modern-day Amman, the capital of Jordan. And, uh, but the actual ear, or city, is the, is the Acropolis, the high place there that is uh, guarded, and that's, uh, that's the citadel. Same is true in 2 Samuel 5 and elsewhere in, with regards to the ear that's sometimes called Zion, uh, uh, Jerusalem. It is actually the fort or citadel in Jerusalem. It is not the whole town. It is the, 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 the place where the palace would be uh, and uh, where the army would uh, defend it. And that's in uh, the Jebusite Jerusalem before David comes in to take it. So <clears throat> when it says it commands the complete destruction, Deuteronomy 20 commands the complete destruction, the word there is cherem. Cherem uh, like you might think, uh, it refers to uh, a, uh, something that is set aside, that is completely given. And in this case, the principle or idea is that it's given back to God. Uh, you might look at it by, uh, in terms of here is something or a people or something else that has gone its own way, that has gone apart from God. And now the harem is that God takes it back to himself. And uh, normally this term, which is used in the Bible and outside of the Bible, carries the meaning of destruction or complete destruction. And, you, and it is a reference specifically here to the cities that are so to be destroyed, uh, giving back to God that which uh, was taken from him. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, in the Canaanite period, we can look at Shechem, and I could show you pictures of this. Uh, in the Israelite period later on at a city like Arad, these are not what we think of as cities. They're relatively small. If you go visit, you can visit them today in Israel. Uh, they are actually and uh, take on much more the appearance of walled forts. Not everybody in the area lived in these cities, uh, as they're called, but they were forts. They contained the palace for the king. They contained royal stores where the taxes in kind would be brought in, the grain and barley and whatnot, and then redistributed. Uh, they contained temples where their gods and goddesses would be worshipped. They contained barracks for the soldiers. They contained perhaps a few houses also for uh, the uh, elites, the, the upper class of that particular city, that particular year. The masses, however, did not live in those places. They, there wouldn't be enough room. They lived in hamlets outside the walls. And this is uh, perfectly reasonable in an agrarian society where you have agriculture as the primary means of uh, survival. The people would live in, the, in small hamlets, villages, where they would then ha have immediate access to the fields and where their flocks also could graze, and so it would uh, provide for food. Uh, so the actual city, however, was not where most people lived. They might conduct business there, and if there were an emergency where an, uh, an enemy were attacking, they would go into that city and uh, be protected there by the fortifications and things. But as a rule, I, I, uh, most people would live outside in the uh, uh, unfortified uh, hamlets or villages. Cities represent the military and the leadership. They represent, in many ways, oppression and rulership, and we could go into that at some length. Uh, the Canaanites at this time were notorious 
for uh, uh, a very strong, uh, very bad taxation on the people and all kinds of issues. Uh, Deuteronomy 20 commands the destruction of the armies and their forts, the ear or city. This represents a religion and ideology, that is the city does with its temples as well as its kings and leaders, uh, represents a religion and ideology that opposes Israel as a people and it opposes their God. Uh, and by the way, this is the primary reason in, in the actual book of Joshua for the uh, uh, attack on the armies and uh, these uh, forts or cities. Uh, so their, their conservatives destroyed this ideology of force which was set against God and Israel. In Deuteronomy 20, therefore, is an ideal. It's teaching about God's holiness. It is true of mo much of ancient Near Eastern law, biblical as well as uh, other ancient Near East, like the law, famous law code of Hammurabi and there's other legal collections. It's not a description of what actually happened. You can go through something like the, the law code of Hammurabi from a few centuries earlier and in the thousands and thousands of texts, juridical and other, uh, other texts we have contracts, there's not one mention or reference to the code of Hammurabi. Why? Because it's an ideal. Now, in, in Hammurabi's case, it's intended to be uh, propaganda. Here, it's not propaganda. It is, however, an ideal. It is what is to be done. And for Israel's understanding, however, what actually occurred, we look at Joshua 1 to 11, beginning with the story of Jericho. Jericho is set, of course, in the Jordan Valley at the lowest spot on earth, um, right north, just north of the Dead Sea. And it's been excavated and re-excavated and re-re-excavated. <coughs> Uh, in an attempt to find the walls and this and that. And uh, in the, uh, to make a long story short, they haven't been so much found. But I believe that there's a reason for that, and it's partly because this is not uh, a city as we think of, but it's a fort. It was, what about Jericho's size? Well, remember, it was small enough, according to the book of Joshua, it was small enough for Israel to march around it seven times in one day and fight a battle. Uh, time to do that. Um, the only non-combatants that are mentioned in Jericho by name or identified are Rahab and his, her family. That's it. Nobody else is mentioned there other than the soldiers and the king. The king hears and responds pretty quickly, sending his agents then back to Rahab's house. And this would be consistent with a small site. The actual site of Jericho, even if the whole thing were populated, uh, the, the Tel, the Tel Sultan, it's only a few acres, so it's not huge to begin with. Jericho's position, however, is strategic. It lies at the end of several main roads into the central hill country. The south road goes into the central hill country to Jerusalem. This was made famous, of course, by the story of the Good Samaritan later on um, in the New Testament times. Other roads go to Bethel, uh, and uh, some roads go, and one road goes farther north. Uh, these, hill, these hill country sites, like Jerusalem, Bethel, and so forth, maintained a fort at uh, Jericho. And I believe that's what we have here at the time that Israel encounters it. Uh, there is no note on Jericho's large size. The, the, the size of Jericho as some giant uh, great fort, which is so often portrayed uh, in popular media, like Veggie Tales or whatever you might... Um, <laughs> It's, it, the Bible nowhere says that. It says, it calls Gibeon a great city, in Irgidalah, in, in Joshua 10. In Joshua 11, it calls Hatzor in the north at the head of all the kingdoms, but not Jericho. I don't think Jericho was a large city. I'll, get, I'll come around to why so much emphasis is placed on Jericho, but uh, I'm just telling you what the text is 
actually saying. Now, the controversial text in, in, uh, re regarding Jericho is chapter 6, verse 21. This is the one that's used because this is the only one that can be interpreted as implying that non-combatants were killed. It says, they devoted to the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword everything in it, that is, Joshua and the Israelites. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkey. Now, that sounds like a, pretty much a genocide, if you will. Um, okay. Well, anyway. Um, but, what, is it, what does the text actually say? The Hebrew has... Which is literally, that, that text that says men and women is literally from man to woman. And I would argue that this is simply a stereotypical or standard way of saying everyone in it without necessarily saying that yes, there were men, there were women, there were donkeys, there were sheep. This is a list. Uh, in fact, that term, from man to woman, which is found in this verse and in the one at I, occurs seven times in the Bible. It occurs with reference to I in, in the similar text. It, refers, it occurs excuse me, with reference to Amalek that Israel defeats, uh, Saul defeats in 1 Samuel 15. With reference to, the, to Nob, that priestly village north and, uh, of, of Jerusalem that is uh, eliminated and destroyed by the... Uh, by Saul's army for helping David. It, re it refers to Jerusalem. From man to woman refers to all the people that David had uh, uh, invited and brought and celebrated with him, the bringing of the ark into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. And again, Nehemiah refers to it in Nehemiah 8. Later on, it refers to all Israel in 2 Chronicles 15. Um, all the occurrences except Nob, where children are specifically mentioned, and, uh, and it said that Saul did this, of course, it was not in, uh, by any means in God's will. All other occurrences precede or follow the statement from man to woman with the word coal, meaning everyone. So what they're saying is this is a way of saying everyone, and it's a stereotypical phrase for everyone in a town or region without assuming anything more about age or gender. In and of itself, the statement is not saying they had to kill non-combatants any more than it says they had to kill a donkey, somebody would find some donkeys, to kill. It's just that if they were there, then they were killed. That's the way I see it and understand this, this phrase and the actual grammar of the text. Jericho, for Jericho, all uh, I take with reference to warriors. Uh, basically, Jericho was a fort garrisoned by the hill country cities in order to provide defense, but also collect taxes for people moving back and forth. They had someone like Rahab there, who I believe was basically responsible for running an inn, and uh, uh, perhaps with her family. And that is, uh, and, and that makes sense too, because you'll remember, again, in the story of the Good Samaritan, he takes, the, the Samaritan takes the uh, uh, injured individual back uh, down to Jericho and to an inn there. So uh, that's what was there. But that's exceptional. Only Rab is mentioned, of course, she is delivered and saved from this destruction, whereas the rest of the uh, figures uh, face death. Now, what about the king? Doesn't king sound like a, uh, a kind of king over a city or something like that? Well, in, in Hebrew, the word for king is melech. It occurs three times in chapter 2 with reference to Jericho and, and in chapter 6 uh, with reference to uh, Jericho. 
uh, five times more in the entire uh, book of Joshua. The traditional meaning of king would then suggest that Jericho would be a kind of royal castle or, or a palace for the king of Fort. But the region is otherwise uninhabited, so who would his subjects be? There's no other person or site mentioned from Adam up north down to the Dead Sea. Um, we just don't see other individuals there. So what about the word king? How should we understand it? Well, roughly from the time of Joshua is this collection of cuneiform texts, uh, more than 300 of them, which are letters written between uh, Canaanite princes and Egypt's pharaoh in the 14th century BC. The pharaoh is most frequently called king. Uh, even from Jerusalem there are some letters that say to the king my lord with reference to the pharaoh. Uh, in fact, a lot of letters begin that way. Uh, but there are other people called king too. The leader of Hatsor, a man named by the name of Abdi Tirshi at this time, he, he writes to the king my lord, but he, he calls himself a king. The king of Hatsor uses the term Sharu there. Uh, he says, I fall at the feet of my lord, customary self-humiliation, and the rest of the letter talks about the coming of the pharaoh. But the point is, all of this is to say that you could have a more flexible usage of the king. It did not just mean independent sovereign. It could also mean someone who was under another's authority, like the pharaoh's authority for the king in, in Hatsor. Like Abdi Tirshi was called a king and yet recognized a greater king over him, so the ruler of Jericho could have been under authority to another, whether the leader of Bethel, Jerusalem, or a coalition. Jer Jericho's king uh, was a fort commander, and he would have governed the troops and maintained security against the enemies and their agents. Indeed, there are some other people from this same collection of texts, a fellow named Piwuri, who is Pharaoh's commissioner and uses the same root word, Malik, uh, for king. It's in Canaanite, not in Hebrew, but it's the same word and the same, uh, a, dialect, a slight dialectical variation, but you have the, the same root. Piwuri worked around Canaan, Gaza, Jerusalem, Biblos, he moved around, and he is called a commissioner as well. So this word can also mean commissioner at this time, and I think that like Piwuri, Jericho's Malik was a commissioner responsible to his overlord for military security in the region. Both would have been answerable to an overlord, whether Pharaoh in the case of Piwuri, or the rulers in the hill country in the case of the king in Jericho. So uh, I see him basically as what we might call a governor or mayor or commissioner. Uh, as far as the army, what about the army in Jericho? Uh, little is known about the army. Um, no numbers indicate how large. The soldiers, there's more than one, are there. They are sent by the king to oust uh, or to find uh, the spies from Joshua. So there, there's more than two, but are there hundreds, thousands, how many? Well, we aren't told. It's a small uh, site, and uh, if it is a fort, then uh, uh, where can we find out? Well, uh, one place to look is contemporary written evidence from that period, the late Bronze Age, Canaan. And there is found, uh, once again in these letters, the Amarna letters, where city leaders from around this area request reinforcements. And they give numbers to the Pharaoh in terms of how many they want. And this is very revealing. The leader of Jerusalem, for example, wants 50 reinforcements, additional troops, to defend the city. Uh, the leader of Byblos, Ribadi, asks for uh, 50. Uh, the king of Tyre, or the leader of Tyre, asks for uh, 20. Now, Jerusalem is closest to Jericho, 
So if you're asking for 50 reinforcements, what would the original army size be? Well, it probably wouldn't be in the thousands because then why bother asking for 50? That's not going to do a whole lot. Uh, but it might be three or four times the requested 50. So we're talking about in Jerusalem, perhaps, and this would fit the size of the city at that time, maybe a 5 or 10% increase would be insignificant. It's got to be more, but three or four times, uh, maybe 200, something like that in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have had no more than a few hundred troops and possibly a smaller number. Jericho would be fewer in number still in terms of its size. So uh, as far as troops go, in terms of the fort, uh, maybe a hundred. And uh, that's a realistic estimate on the basis of the numbers we have. Uh, how that fits with regards to large numbers in the book of numbers, I'd be happy to talk about. Ask me in the questions afterwards. Uh, because I, I, I don't see it that large. I don't think the word for thousand needs to be translated as thousand, and it doesn't make sense in some of the texts anyway. Um, what then is the purpose of Jericho? If Jericho was a fort, not particularly large, with maybe a hundred troops, and Israel defeated it, why do they spend so much time talking about Jericho? Well, because and there are more words of Jericho than on any other city captured. Jericho was the first battle that Joshua led. He was the new commander. Moses had died. Joshua comes in as the new commander. In Joshua 1, God makes clear that Joshua was the chosen leader by God. He chose him as a successor to Moses. And in chapter 3, verse 7, God says to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. So there is here an emphasis on the important, uh, on, the, on, on making Joshua to be recognized by the people as the leader. If this is his first victory, it's the most important one to make that point. Now, not only that, but I think we should balance. The whole picture of Jericho is often distorted. It's a very wonderful Sunday school story. But if you actually read verses 6 to 25 of Joshua 6, which talks about the destruction of Jericho, and also talks about the salvation of Rahab, the faithful Canaanite. If you read those and compare them, there's something like 86 words in the Hebrew deal with Rahab's salvation and the salvation of her family being delivered. 102 words deal with the destruction of Jericho. They're roughly about the same, which means, for me, it means that in terms of the writer of the story of Jericho, the salvation of Rahab and her family was as important as the destruction of the city. Uh, and we miss that because we focus all on, of course, the destruction of the city. But the emphasis in the actual text, in the Hebrew text, is roughly the same. Okay, what about I? Joshua 7 to 8 describes the story of I. It is as problematic as Jericho in terms of archaeological evidence. Part of the problem here, and I, I didn't deal with this too much with regards to Jericho, but if you talk to archaeologists who actually do archaeology, you find out that by and large, Jericho was not inhabited during the time that Joshua and Israel show up. There's no specific evidence for a big city or anything like that at Jericho. Same is true at Ai. Um, but if it's a fort, you don't need to have a lot of evidence left over. A fort at Jericho could use 
reuse already existing walls that were certainly there. Jericho's one of the oldest cities in the world going back to 8,000 BC, depending upon how you interpret some material. But other, there were walls already there and they could use those. So it's not as though, and, and they would not have left anything distinctive because it's a fort with soldiers in it. It's not a group of people who are collecting uh, very nice pottery and other things such as uh, elites or wealthier would have and that, that sort of thing can date things. What they would have used there would not have been uh, datable uh, in the way that, that other types of things like pottery are dated by archaeologists. So it's, uh, and the same is true of I. I sits right next to Bethel traditionally. And the city or the, the site of I was not inhabited at this form, but the word I itself means ruin. And it's actually never called I, it's called the I, the ruin in the Hebrew, which means that this was probably a ruin, and there are certainly walls there from 2400 BC. You can go and see them today at that site. And uh, I think they simply reused those walls. Uh, for a fort, a makeshift fort which would guard the passes up to Bethel. And interestingly enough, in the story about the destruction of Ai, Bethel is also mentioned and soldiers from Bethel. So similar to Jericho with Amalek, walls, an army, and no specific non-combatants. The Melech, or king, was a local commander with superiors. The walls were mud brick or a makeshift setup from earlier walls. As I said, Ai means ruin. And uh, the, the reference in 825 the men and women that, that are killed is again stereotypical. It means from man to woman. It simply is a way of saying everyone. It does not automatically require non-combatants to be involved. It could be an army just of soldiers. It could be all men who are fighting. It doesn't require women to be there. It's a way of saying everyone, whoever is there. Moving on to Joshua 10 and 11. <clears throat> 10 and 11 refer to the southern and northern coalitions. First, the southern coalition led by the leader, the Canaanite king of Jerusalem. And uh, he gathers together a group of uh, other kings in the first five verses and says, we got to go and fight against Gibeon because they've made an alliance with Israel. And so they go against Gibeon. The Gibeonites then send off to Israel and say, you made an alliance with us. You've got to come and help us or we'll be destroyed by this coalition. So Israel marches through the night and shows up. Um, and really, if the kings had destroyed Gibeon, they would have gone after Israel. We certainly know that from chapter 11 of Joshua, where the northern coalition, led by the king of Hatzor, at the head of all the kingdoms, he gathers together a, a, a coalition of armies, it says, and their chariots, which are sort of the ICBMs of the day, I mean, they're the major uh, uh, weaponry, the most advanced technologically advanced weaponry, uh, gathers together and their chariots are like the sand of the sea with the sole purpose of attacking and destroying Israel. So these wars are ones where Israel either had to fight or it faced extinction. That, by definition, is a defensive war. It is not an offensive battle. Non-combatants are not specifically mentioned anywhere. Certainly not in the initial battles where they're fighting against an army. Now, in Joshua 10, verses 28 to 42, it goes on to say then, once the initial army is wiped out, it says Joshua and Israel went to city after city, Lachish, uh, uh, Makedah, Hebron, 
uh, just a, a whole, there's about seven cities there that are mentioned, six of which they go to, and they destroy them. Again, if you go back to how I understand the city, a city is a fort uh, for the king, the temple, and the army. Well, the army's gone at that point, so there's no reason to assume that the non-combatant innocents would have gathered there and wait to be slaughtered. Uh, I Think about it very logically or reasonably. If you were in that position of being a Canaanite living in a hamlet or someplace around one of those cities like Hebron, and uh, you're, you know your army's gone to fight, and they've been decimated, they've been just about destroyed, and you know uh, from the survivors that basically the Israelites are coming and going to attack Hebron. Well, you wouldn't go into the fort of Hebron and hope that they don't come there. Um, you, would do, you would do one of two other things. Well, there, there are four possibilities. One would be to do that, which I think is the least likely. A second, a second possibility would be to convert and become Israelite. This is what Rahab did. And in a sense, the Gibeonites did it. But according to Joshua 11, no one converted other than Rahab and the Gibeonites in that generation. A third possibility is run away. And that's perhaps what some did. In fact, that would really fulfill the command of God to clear the land uh, if, the Israel, if, if the Canaanites simply left and migrated to another, another country. Uh, but I don't think that's what most of them did. I think the fourth possibility is the one that most of them did, and that is they just went and hid out in the hills. The Israelites were nowhere told uh, went into the hills and tried to find all the Canaanites and rout them out. And remember, the command in Joshua 20 is to go against the cities, uh, specifically. Now, my understanding then is that they, were, they would either emigrate or hide in the hills. I think most of them did hide in the hills. And in the book of Judges, by the way, that's exactly what Israel does a number of times. When it's oppressed by armies from around, from outside who come in, the Israelites hide in the hills because they don't have any other way of defending themselves. And I think that's what the Canaanite population did. And the proof of that, in terms of the biblical text, is that immediately when you move into the next generation in the book of Judges, there are Canaanites everywhere. If there was a genocide of Canaanites, why are there so many around, leading Israel astray in every place throughout the book of Judges? Uh, from chapter 2, verses 9 to 13, is a classic text around uh, on. There was no extermination, therefore, in my view, of the, of the Canaanites um, in terms of what actually happened. Neither the biblical text of Joshua nor that of Judges supports any genocide. The attacks on Jericho and I were assaults on military targets against uh, a military force in both of them. The major wars that Joshua fought were defensive. The Canaanites remained in all regions, according to Judges 1. That explicitly states, and, the, uh, and it, it, it is an accusation against the Israelites for not going after them, but nevertheless, they remained there, and they intermarried with Israelites in the following generations. Uh, this is the biblical understanding of these battles. The archaeological and extra-biblical textual evidence do not contradict it, but I believe they support it. So in the case of Deuteronomy and Joshua, the Israelites attacked forts. They did so in order to defend their own existence, and in the cases of Jericho and Ai, to challenge the claims of the kings of Canaan and their armies who claimed the land for themselves and their gods. The Israelites fought and defeated the armies of Canaan and their leaders. 
they did not commit genocide, and that's really uh, my take on it. So the idea that Joshua and the Israelites committed genocide is just not true. They didn't. Now, should they have? What would be the ideal? What should they have done? One can discuss that. But what I'm looking at here for most of this, except for the Deuteronomy 20 passage, uh, is not the ideal, but what really actually happened. Here's some bibliography of some things. I did a commentary on Joshua, and there's an interesting book on war in the Bible, and the website could give you some more material. So, anyway, that's, uh, that's the presentation that I wanted to make. Thank you. So, uh, can we have questions? Okay, uh, questions, comments, anything? Yes. Right. Okay, the expression in Hebrew is not men and women. It's literally, if you look at the Hebrew text, it is from man to woman. Now, you think about that. What's it saying when it's saying that? And then, it, and then uh, the seven times it appears, in almost every case, it simply then says all, uh, all of them. Uh, I see that as simply stating that whoever was there was killed. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there were, for example, usually women would be non-combatants, that there were any women killed. If they were there, they were, they were put to death. And I'm not, I'm not trying to, uh, although it may seem as a way, I'm not trying to whitewash this. I'm not suggesting there was no, that horrible phrase, collateral damage and that sort of thing. I'm not suggesting that didn't occur. Uh, but what I am suggesting is that there was, this idea that there was some kind of a, uh, a genocide just doesn't match with the evidence. So does that help? Uh, or? Uh, yeah, so you were, like, you were listing out all the instances. Right. That and you're saying that since in those instances it wasn't necessarily the Oh, it was. It was everyone who was there. For example, it's used from man to woman is a term that's used in 2 Samuel 6 when David brings the ark into Jerusalem and he dances before the Lord and, and all of Jerusalem is, has a festive time. At that time, I have no doubt there were women and children and elderly people and that sort of thing. But it doesn't, it doesn't require that there have to be the, those there. Sometimes it includes them, at other times, it doesn't. It's a way of saying everyone. And, and, and so if it's a fort, it's military. It's not non-combatants. So because since he's specifically targeting forts, when they say from man to woman, it doesn't necessarily mean yeah. there weren't any women and children there, right. 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 Just whoever happens to be there. It's, it's a way of saying they fulfilled what they were required to do. And, uh, of course, that's with Jericho and I, which I think are the two where, where this phrase and term is used, yeah. Yes. Yes? You said that in Judges, then with all these Canaanites who have come, and then, then they couldn't have been a genocide in the, the next... Yeah, yeah. Well, see, now that's a different question. Should they have done it? I think, in some sense, my reading of Deuteronomy 20, which is the initial command, is that Israel should remove the Canaanites from its presence. If they resist, like the armies did in Joshua, they should be put to death. Uh, 
If they flee, they should be allowed to flee. If they convert like Rahab did, they should be accepted into Israel, Israel's faith. So, uh, right, I don't think Israel did what it was supposed to do. What would that have looked like is a matter of speculation. To say that it must have involved genocide is a leap, <laughs> as I take. Well, that's what Je Deuteronomy 20 says. Get rid of them because otherwise you'll, you'll intermarry. It's not just the intermarriage, it's the fact then that they will lead you astray into the worship of their gods. That's the real issue here in Deuteronomy 20, verse 8. The, the compromise of the faith. And that's exactly what happens in Judges. That's why you go into this cycle. The people go and they start worshiping other gods and then the God sends them some oppressor from outside and then they cry to God and he sends a judge and he delivers them and then they're okay for that generation and then they go back to worshiping other gods and it goes on and on. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's, uh, the, the Canaanites are there with their gods and goddesses to, to, to lead them astray. Yes? Yes. I recall back there was a lot of brutal campaigns in Moab and before they got to Jericho. Right, right. And also in Sam, but, there was an awful lot of brutal uh, Yes. Uh, okay. Go, sorry, go ahead. Slaughtering, you know, particularly David, you know, a lot of yeah. slaughtering women and children. Uh, See, this, yeah. So you're sort of picking one little area there. Right. Which is why I said at the beginning it has to be done on a case by case basis. Um, the issue of Transjordan with Og and Sihon, Sihon king of Eshbon and Og king of Bashan is actually, there's not a lot of specifics about women and children being killed there. It's the armies uh, that, uh, that they defeat. And beyond that, uh, they certainly do acquire land and they, and they settle in that land. Uh, the issue with the Amalekites, the, the, the issue with the Amalekites is, I think, a very specific one. That's 1 Samuel 15. That's David's fighting against the Amalekites. Uh, and that goes back to Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, the, the, the Israelites are attacked by Amalek. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, the Ammonites are still there. They're there throughout Israel's history. And so are the Moabites. The specific ones that they say they devoted to the Cherim or Ban are Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. They're, they're both in the uh, Transjordan. Uh, they, whether they may have been partly Moabite or not, Og is called one of the last of the Rephaim. Um, uh, as far as I can see, the focus there is on the armies being killed. And, uh, and I'm not, again, I would, I would not want to say that Israel was just perfectly, I mean, look at Joshua 17, 18 and the, and the slaughter of Dan, and then look at 19 to 21 in the Civil War. Uh, this isn't approved by God, but the fact that they engaged in brutal murder is there. It just, it just would, I, I draw though a little bit of a line because I don't see that that's God's will or ideal will for them. So that's kind of how I, I, I take that. <laughs> yes? Yeah. <laughs> the idea is that uh, God commands slaughter in Deuteronomy, but it's not slaughter because there's no um, 
non-combatants there. Is that what you're No, I think there was slaughter in the, t in, in, in the sense that the armies were defeated. Well, yeah. All those who stood up against Israel were destroyed. Sure, yeah, but there weren't non-combatants in Right, Jericho. right, that's my take on it. Yeah, hi, hi, hyperbole, yeah. How do you weigh those well, I, yeah, I mean, hyperbole is a nice term, and I certainly think that it's used in ancient Near Eastern texts and sources. Um, I am kind of reluctant to see it in, in, in the biblical text. The term all Israel, for example, doesn't mean every man, woman, and child in Israel. Clearly, all Israel often refers just to the armies of Israel. But uh, I don't think that's hyperbole. I think that's simply a way of identifying the fighting force of Israel. It's, they call it all Israel. Uh, I also think it's a theological statement about the importance of unity among the people of God, but that's another issue. Um, so, so when it comes to terms like that, I, don't, I, I, I resist the idea of hyperbole. Uh, certainly it's used in the ancient Near East. Certainly everybody has their own biases and selectivity in terms of what they report. I have no problem with that, and Israel doing that. But where it distorts what I think is being re reported in a significant way so that you're getting a very different perspective, that I have trouble with. And, and I know, I mean, there are some, some nations like Egypt that used hyperbole far, far more than, say, the Hittites. The Hittites were far closer and more accurate in their, in their recording. So you can't simply generalize and say, everybody did this, so Israel did it too. Um, it varies from ruler to ruler and from nation to nation. So I, 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 I pull back <laughs> with the term hyperbole a bit. Uh, yeah. and, and interestingly, I might add, there are some people, I, I'm very, I, I know a number of people have written on this and some argued it, and some of them would pull back on that a little bit now, too, so, uh, anyway. Yes? Could you talk about what you mentioned earlier with regard to the word thousand being oh, yes. interpreted correctly? Yes. Um, this is the issue that you have. Uh, oh, let me pull this up, I think. And um, that's... The word for thousand is the word... Elif, like an elephant, only that's the Hebrew word, it's, it's elif. Um, and it means, in mo it can mean thousand, but in uh, military contexts, it can also mean a, uh, a group of soldiers. A little bit like centurion during the Roman period did not always have to be a leader of a hundred. It could be a leader of, and so it's, it's not that uncommon in armies. And, and that's the case here. Now, so you have 603 elves plus some additional uh, soldiers who come out of, Israel, uh, out of, uh, out of uh, Egypt when they're numbered. And, and so I don't think that that means 603 or what, uh, you know, the specific number of 1,000. And I'll tell you why it doesn't quite fit the numbers in the system uh, once this uh, program comes up. Because I want to show you a verse that's kind of interesting. Uh, with regards to this, the, uh, mm -hmm. thank you, and uh, it's in numbers. Count the firstborn males. The number of first, uh, sorry, the number of firstborn males a month old or more. Firstborn was twenty-two thousand. Now you do the math. 
On 22,000 firstborn males, 600,000 soldiers. That means that every mother in Israel had an average of about 30 warriors <laughs> born and was mother of them, plus all the others. I mean, the women aren't included in that and so forth. So it doesn't fit all the math, uh, uh, the, the reality. And if you have two million, I'm not saying God couldn't guide two million people through and do whatever to protect them and so forth. It just doesn't make any sense in terms of what we know of that period of time. Um, you, two million would be larger than the whole population of Egypt. Two million would be many times larger than about maybe, well, there were probably less than 100,000 Canaanites in the whole land of Canaan, uh, south of Tyre. So it makes no sense for all that goes on. But if you take what is a, in my view, perfectly legitimate, and translate thousand as squad, company, however, you come into a, into a number that's much more realistic in terms of what we know, which would be 10, 20,000, something like that, not millions. And it's not a question of twisting the Bible, it's, a, it's just a question of reading it according to what the text actually says. And the word elf can mean uh, a group of soldiers without indicating that it has to be a thousand. Okay, yes? The meta narrative of the whole scripture is God's redemptive plan to the world through his Messiah, through the chosen people Israel. That story is told throughout Genesis all the way to the end. Uh, how do you reconcile and, or deal with this issue of the supposed massacre uh, with that meta narrative of redemption and, and all encompassing right, one right. of the best Yeah. It's, 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 it's very interesting to actually read the text of Joshua. If you read the text of Joshua, although I'm, I have no problem with the iniquity of the Amorites being full and everything out of Genesis 15 and, 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 and the sins of, of Egypt and Canaan that are mentioned in Leviticus, uh, in Joshua itself, the reason Israel fights is because here you have, and, and it begins with Rahab in her confession in, in Joshua 2, 9 to 11, where she says, everyone in Canaan is melting in fear because of you. We have heard what you did. And by the way, that itself is a quote right out of Exodus 15 and the Song of the Sea. But it's very interesting because it says the Canaanites will fear, and they do. Look at chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. Again and again, the armies are... They know Israel is superior. They know the God of Israel has, has... But rather than allow that God to move forward and to accomplish the plan of redemption, they specifically come out to fight and to try to resist. And the, the classic example is Jericho. It's no accident that God causes the walls to fall down because the walls symbolize the resistance of Canaan to the plan of redemption that God brings. And uh, you know that, that marching around seven days, the verb to march around, nagaf, the root, actually is used in the Psalms where it says in the Psalms, march around Zion and look at her gates, how strong she is. It's, it's, it, each one of those is a ceremonial, ceremonial inspection. For seven days, the symbolic presence of God in the form of the Ark of the Covenant goes around Jericho to see if there's any opening. 
any way that Jericho will allow God and his army to march in. And of course they don't. The only opening is Rahab's window, which remains open with the red thread, which is itself a connection with the Passover, and it's, it's, it's remarkable. But she knows that redemption. The rest of Jericho, like the rest of the Canaanite kings, is dead set against opposing Israel, no matter what that might cost, and even though they fear and they know that that God is superior. So in the end, it's, 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 uh, it's as close as you can get virtually to a kind of kingdom of darkness and kingdom of light. If the plan of God is going to be carried through, and ultimately the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing the presence of God is going to come into the land and wind up in Jerusalem, where it does wind up in the end, and the people in, in, and, and God's promise and his covenant, then that, that has to be ended. That resistance has to be ended. And in this case, the only way to end it is to break it. And so that's how I see it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's not a pretty picture, but then what are you going to do? Either every knee will bow and every tongue confess, or it won't. Yeah, sorry. Uh, just a bit. It's on 9.30, and it's the bottom of the hour, and uh, Dr. Hess has been very graciously answering questions for the last 15 minutes. Um, maybe if we could just take one more um, question. Sorry, it's a lot of pressure. Um, one more <laughs> question, and then um, we could let Dr. Hess go and probably have a couple folks just come up and speak with him individually. Okay. okay? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so just one more. Remember. You seem to have, yeah. Yeah, my question is real quick. You mentioned your book, War in the Bible, in terrorism. Yes. It sounds really interesting. I'm wondering, does it go into this phrase that you mentioned earlier from men to, to women, and how that means everyone? Uh, uh, so definitely yeah. Um, that, I think that does. Uh, this is a very interesting book, even in general, for the issue of warfare. It's, it's all Christians. It, it was, a, it was a, simpo- a conference we had at Denver Seminary a number of years back, and we had both pacifists and people who uh, served in the military. And we, they both contributed articles. The first chapter is Miroslav Wolf's chapter, uh, Does Christianity Cause War? And it goes from there. We do a survey of war in the Bible. We do differing views on it. We do different issues on the terrorism and the issue of the invasion of Iraq and is that a just war or not and what constitutes a just war. Uh, so there's a, I, I know of no other book that has this wide of a variety of chapters giving these different views. Uh, in this, I contribute a kind of general survey of war in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially. Um, I do some of that there. Uh, the From Man to Woman is discussed in another essay I did in a book that I also edited called uh, Critical Issues in Israelite History. And that's published by Eisenbrowns. And I uh, edited it along with Paul Ray and Gerald Klingbeil. So if you need to, uh, feel free to email me. I'll give you the, the full reference. Uh, I teach at Denver Seminary. You go on to faculty and click that, and then there are my emails there. So. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.